0: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. Welcome to Portraits of Blue and Gray. The upcoming series is going to be something of a change of pace from our ordinary format. Instead of focusing on a single biographical subject, we're going to discuss some of the more exciting or interesting stories from the Civil War. Uh, Specifically taking inspiration from the story of the Mule Raid in the series on Nathan Bedford Forrest, we'll look at a few of the war's most famous raids. Today's episode title, Raiders of the Lost Cause, is a dumb play on words, but I couldn't resist. Originally, the focus was going to be on uh, Chambersburg, Pennsylvania uh, specifically, which, uh, although north of the Mason-Dixon line, was the target of two memorable raids— Where the title comes in is that the two confederates associated with those raids, Jeb Stuart and Jubal Early, are also two of the central figures in the Lost Cause narrative. So to tie it all together, we will look at the uh, two Chambersburg raids, but we will also delve into the careers of uh, Stuart and Early, uh, more so Stuart. I ultimately decided to make this a two-parter, which is why this show is a little on the short side. But the good news is that Part 2 is almost complete, and so should be released soon on the heels of Part 1. Then, moving forward, the next topic will be either the Dahlgren Affair, or the sinking of the CSS Albemarle, or uh, maybe Grierson's Raid, all of which are pretty interesting stories. Now, in big-picture strategic terms, raids don't always end up making a huge difference in the overall uh, war picture but they tend to be a lot of fun to learn about, yeah, chock full of action and interesting characters. This won't specifically be a series on cavalry, but by necessity, we will be spending a decent amount of time on that topic, uh, which isn't at all a bad thing. As in the Civil War, at least, it was the cavalry who most often conducted raiding expeditions. Now, one reason cavalry is fun to learn about is that cavaliers tend to be compelling figures with big personalities and a taste for adventure. And the cavalry itself has kind of a romantic nostalgia attached to it. The idea of horsemen charging across an open plain, plunging courageously into enemy forces, stirs the heart. For me personally, I'm thinking about the riders of Rohan at the Battle of Helm's Deep, bravely crashing into a sea of orcs you know, from Lord of the Rings, or the Two Towers, to be more precise. But I'm sure you can think of plenty of other examples, as could old Alfred Tennyson. The Civil War was the last major American war in which cavalry, in the traditional sense of horse-mounted cavalry, uh, played a really crucial part. Uh, There was obviously some some cavalry action in the Spanish-American War, uh, TR's Rough Riders, for example, and the Indian Wars fought on the Western Plains were, were very heavy on cavalry. But as the 20th century dawned, improving weaponry and motorized transportation made cavalry less relevant, which I think makes Civil War cavalry all the more interesting. Horses were still used as draft animals uh, to pull artillery, e- even in World War II. But the idea of a separate mobile fighting force composed of um, men on horseback uh, kind of faded away. Um, even by the mid-19th century, cavalry charges had become much less of a difference maker. Muscular horses um, powering uh, lance-wielding knights were less formidable when long-range artillery and accurate rifles could disable both horse and rider long before they reached the opposing line. In response, cavaliers switched from lances to rifles, pistols, and sabers, or even shotguns on occasion. And their role in the Civil War wasn't so much uh, about the power of horse flesh anymore as about the mobility the horses enabled. Cavalry units made much more effective scouts than men on foot. And on the other side, strategically deployed cavalry could effectively screen the movements of infantry from an opponent's advance units. In a pinch, a cavalry or mounted infantry uh, regiment could be quickly deployed to fill a hole that developed during battle or slow down a flanking maneuver until the bulk of the infantry could get turned around. Smart cavalry commanders like Nathan Bedford Forrest and Benjamin Grierson used the speed of their cavalry to surprise adversaries, whether severing communications or logistics networks capturing an unsuspecting garrison, or simply running amuck behind enemy lines, creating the unsettling psychological impression that an attack might come at any moment. In general, Civil War cavalry was usually organized in regiments and companies. In theory, a company would consist of 100 men, though actual numbers were almost always lower, and each cavalry regiment would have 10 companies. So, at full force, a regiment was composed of 1,000 troopers, though again, there were rarely, if ever, that many actually present and effective riders. Early on in the conflict, the Confederates held a clear advantage in cavalry. In the rural, agricultural south, there were a lot more men who grew up riding horses, compared to the more urban, industrial north. Southern recruits were also more likely to be expert marksmen, Uh, to know how to live off the land, or to just take care of a horse. Southerners also made up a disproportionate percentage of the cavalry officers in the pre-war Federal Army, and as a result, the Confederacy started out with more experienced cavalry commanders. The rebels also enjoyed an organizational advantage in the early part of the war. The Confederate model was to consolidate cavalry together, A cavalry regiment might be attached to a larger army, but it would operate more or less independently of the infantry, which allowed for more flexibility and made it easier to uh, field a large cavalry force. By contrast, the Union started the war with cavalry attached to smaller infantry groupings. Uh, With all that said, and as has been pointed out by more than a few military historians, the gap closed gradually and then quickly. By the end of the war, Union Cavalry, now with experienced officers and riders, fresher, healthier horses, and often superior repeating rifles, held the advantage. Uh, By 1863 and 1864, the Union Army had trained up more than a few quality cavalry officers. Philip Sheridan and George Armstrong Custer, to name a couple famous names. Benjamin Grierson, who came into the war as a music teacher with a strong distaste for horses arising from a childhood accident, was, by 1863, leading nearly 2,000 Union Cavaliers on an over 600-mile raid deep into the heart of Dixie. And he was hugely effective in doing so. On the other side, the ranks of the Confederacy's celebrated Cavaliers had been thinned by attrition. One of the most noteworthy losses occurred in May of 1864, with the death of Jeb Stuart at Yellow Tavern. Stuart probably wasn't the war's best cavalry officer, but he may be the most famous, due in large part to his flamboyant personality, his press-friendly exploits, and his personal charisma. Uh, Stuart is also associated with some of the Civil War's most memorable cavalry raids. Today in Part 1, we'll start off with what ended up being a mini-bio of Jeb Stuart. But then we're going to change direction and look at the war experience of a northern town that involuntarily hosted Confederate raiders multiple times during the Civil War. The town is Chambersburg, Pennsylvania. Stewart hit Chambersburg during one of his two rides around the Army of the Potomac. Uh, A couple years after that, Jubal Early, or more accurately, men riding pursuant to his instructions, paid a visit to Chambersburg. Leaving Chambersburg with the unenviable distinction... Of being one of, if not the, Union cities that suffered the most during the Civil War. <music> contemporaries generally viewed Jeb Stuart as an excellent cavalry commander, military historians are more critical. He does get credit for some pretty impressive exploits, and he was instrumental in figuring out how best to use cavalry uh, effectively in the early war. But he also had some very significant failures. Alan Axelrod writes of Stuart, quote, he elevated the cavalry raid to the status of an art, and at his best, he carried out the more traditional cavalry functions of reconnaissance and force screening more effectively than any other cavalry commander on either side. End quote. But Axelrod also notes that Stuart's vanity, his concern with how he was perceived by others, and especially in the press, impeded his effectiveness. Most famously, during the Gettysburg Campaign, Stuart's quest to provide newspapermen with another great cavalry exploit to write about left Lee blind as the Army of Northern Virginia moved through Maryland and Pennsylvania. The lack of intelligence was at least partially responsible for Lee's committing to battle on unfavorable terms, though Lee certainly deserves plenty of the blame for that himself. Among fellow Confederates, Jeb Stuart was commonly regarded as a genuine military asset, a reputation aided by his engaging personality and flair for the dramatic. General James Longstreet described him like this Stuart, endowed by nature with the gifts that go to make a perfect cavalryman, improved and cultivated through years of active warfare, experience, and discipline, was the embodiment of all that goes to make up the ideal soldierly character, the bold, dashing dragoon. Through all the vicissitudes of war, he held his troopers beside him peerless in prowess and discipline. End quote. Partisan leader John Mosby, who served as a scout under Stuart earlier in the war, said of Jeb's work as a cavalryman, He never had an equal. He discarded the old maxims and soon discovered that in the conditions of modern war, the chief functions of cavalry are to learn the designs and to watch and report the movements of the enemy. In various Confederate memoirs, Stuart is described with terms like "...full of vigor and enterprise." Cool as a piece of ice, though all times laughing. The model of a dashing cavalry leader. A great soldier, but a born cavalryman. Dashing, fearless, clear-headed, enterprising, brilliant. Or, he was as musical as he was brave. He sang as he fought. Henry Kid Douglas also noted Stewart's artistic side, uh, alongside his pridefulness. He described Stewart as, quote, Craving admiration in the parlor as well as on the field, with a taste for music and poetry and song, end quote. and according to Oliver Howard, Stuart had quote, a touch of vanity which invited the smiles and applause of the fair maidens of Virginia end quote. and John Haskell also noted that Stuart displayed much boastful vanity, but with all that he was a shrewd, gallant commander. End quote. Though the boastfulness was nearly universally recognized, according to Haskell, it quote, did not distract from his personal popularity or great usefulness. End quote. In terms of appearance, contemporaries wrote, He was a good looking man, coarse in feature and figure, a strong physique and great energy. A stoutly built man, rather above the middle height, of a most frank and winning expression, the lower part of his face covered with a thick brown beard. Which flowed over his breast. End quote. He had eyes of a light blue in repose, but changing to a darker tinge under high excitement. Now, the point of detailing all these mostly flattering descriptions of Stuart from his fellow rebels isn't so much to get an unbiased assessment as to show that he was a very popular guy. Nearly everyone seems to have liked him, and he had a lot of friends. In a nutshell, he was the the stereotypical cavalier, brash, courageous, capable, maybe a little eccentric, and more than a little full of himself, but in a kind of charming way that most, though certainly not all, uh, comrades found endearing. Even Union General John Sedgwick described Stuart as, quote, "...the greatest cavalryman ever foaled in America." Stuart's admirers apparently also included British observer Arthur Fremantle, who said of Stuart, He is a good-looking jovial character, exactly like his photographs. He has certainly accomplished wonders and done excellent service in his peculiar style of war. He is a good and gallant soldier, though he sometimes incurs ridicule by his harmless affectation and peculiarities. He also departs considerably... From the severe simplicity of dress adopted by other Confederate generals. Now, that last point of Fremantle's is worth elaborating on a little bit. Most Confederate generals wore very plain uniforms. You couldn't tell much difference between Lee's uniform and the average soldier's, other than that Lee's had the stars on the shoulders and was usually in better condition than the average Johnny Reb. And the aforementioned Longstreet also generally wore a pretty plain uniform, as did Stonewall Jackson, at least until Stewart purchased a custom uni from a tailor in Richmond on Jackson's behalf. Jeb Stewart, though, wore a cape lined in scarlet and a felt hat typically tilted to the side and featuring a ridiculously ostentatious ostrich feather. Uh, he spent a lot of time in thigh-high riding boots that one observer described as Elegant complimenting the boots, there was quote a handsome saber carelessly slung by his side and a heavy pair of Mexican spurs end quote now that description of the the carelessly slung saber puts me in mind of the way uh, rock guitarists would uh, wear the guitar straps way too long so that the instrument hangs down uh, almost to their knees and they may still do that I don't know uh, look at a picture of. Uh, Slash or uh, Jimmy Page uh, in concert, if you don't know what I'm talking about. And to complete the portrait of Stuart, most of the time he would have a flower pinned to his lapel, as if he were uh, heading for the senior prom just as soon as the days riding and fighting were concluded. Stuart had been born in February of 1833, so he was in his late 20s when the Civil War broke out. Jeb was an acronym of James Ewell Brown. Like so many other famous Confederates, he served in the U.S. Army before the war, but considered himself a Virginian first and foremost. Stewart hailed from Patrick County, which is a fairly lightly populated area on the North Carolina border in the Blue Ridge Mountains. Today, the county seat of Patrick County, Virginia, is the town of Stewart, renamed for the famous horseman. Back then, it was called Taylorsville. Uh, Stuart came from a military family with a great-grandfather who had fought in the Revolution. Uh, Jeb's father, Archibald, fought in the War of 1812 and then became a lawyer and politician, uh, including a term in the U.S. House of Representatives. His mother, Elizabeth, was in charge of the family farm, including the slaves who worked there, and managed most of the family's business interests. Uh, Most of Jeb's early education came directly from his mother, rather than through formal schooling, though he did spend some time at Emory and Henry College as a teenager. His nomination to West Point in 1850 came from Representative Thomas Everett, who had recently defeated Jeb's father Archibald in the congressional campaign. That's kind of a gentlemanly gesture, right? Sure, I beat you in the election, but I'll sponsor your son's West Point admission to show there's no hard feelings. While at West Point, Stewart became close friends with George Washington Custis Lee and his cousin, Fitzhugh Lee, and got on fairly close terms with the the Lee cousin's uh, father and uncle, West Point Superintendent Robert E. Lee, who was quite fond of the young braggadocious fellow Virginian. Uh, After graduating from West Point in 1854, where he had earned a reputation as a mischievous cadet and met many, many new friends, Stewart accepted a commission as a second lieutenant with the U.S. Army's Mounted Rifleman Regiment. Not long after, he was assigned to the 1st U.S. Cavalry, a New Kansas-based regiment under the command of Bull Sumner. Stewart served as the regiment's quartermaster, and although engineering hadn't really been one of his favorite subjects at West Point, He designed and patented a a mechanism for affixing cavalry sabers to troopers' belts. It was enough of an improvement on the existing design that the U.S. Army paid Stewart a tidy sum for the right to use it. Stewart spent most of his regular Army time on the western frontier, where he honed his ability as a scout. He saw combat action fighting Cheyenne Indians, including sustaining a wound during a saber charge and he got an up-close look at some of the violence in Bleeding Kansas in the 1850s. When the fighting in Kansas spilled over to Harper's Ferry, Virginia, Stewart was on the scene for that as well. He had been in Washington on business relating to his saber-hook invention, and upon learning of the raid, jumped at the opportunity to join the Marines and the militia and their appointed commander, R.E. Lee, on the mission to confront Brown. In our John Brown episode, we noted that Jeb Stuart got the job of attempting to negotiate Brown's unlikely surrender. And when it wasn't possible, it was Stuart who waved his hat to give the, the let's roll signal to the troops on hand to storm the engine house, where Brown was holed up. Jeb Stuart wasn't a die-hard secessionist, but he also didn't hesitate to resign from the U.S. Army in favor of Virginia when the time came in 1861. As he described it, quote, While I love the Union, I love Virginia more, end quote. And as timing would have it, Stewart received a promotion to U.S. Army Captain on April 22nd, then left the Army less than two weeks later on May 3rd. Now, Stewart didn't personally agonize over the decision. There wasn't really any internal conflict over which side he'd be on. He even said he, quote, would rather be a private in Virginia's army than a general in any army that was going to coerce her, end quote. However, he did find himself in the difficult position of being on opposing sides from family. In 1855, Stuart had married a young woman named Flora Cook, who blessed Jeb with a daughter in November 1857. Like her mother, the daughter was also named Flora. Flora Junior, I guess. Uh, Flora Sr.'s father, Lt. Col. Philip St. George Cook, who hailed from Virginia, has been called the Father of the United States Cavalry. And to be honest, I'm not sure exactly who called him that, but several sources that I reviewed stated that he's been called that. Now, Jeb must have have liked, or at least had a a great deal of respect for his father-in-law, because... When Flora gave birth to a boy in June 1860, the baby was christened with the somewhat unwieldy name Philip St. George Cook Stewart. However, when the boy's father-in-law namesake decided in 1861 that he would stick with the union rather than with his uh, native Virginia, like Jeb, uh, Jeb changed his son's name to James Ewell Brown Stewart Jr., the uh, the child would end up going by uh, Jimmy. And uh, to Flora, Jeb said, quote, be consoled by the reflection that your husband and brothers will atone for the father's conduct. End quote. So he's basically telling her, yeah, your father is doing something dishonorable by staying with the union rather than fighting for Virginia. But uh, me and your brothers will be on the right side and we'll make up for it. Uh, Unfortunately, Father-in-law and son-in-law wouldn't get a chance to reconcile after the war. Stuart started the Civil War as a lieutenant colonel in command of the cavalry attached to the Army of the Shenandoah, organized by the man later to be known as Stonewall Jackson at Harpers Ferry, Virginia, later to be known as Harpers Ferry, West Virginia. Though Stuart was initially assigned to command infantry, Jackson, at Stuart's urging, allowed him to take over the cavalry with Robert E. Lee's blessing. Stewart and Jackson left Harper's Ferry to join up with Joseph Johnston in July 1861 for First Bull Run, where Stewart led a rare saber charge that is sometimes credited with starting the Union round. Jackson had high praise for Stewart's performance, leading to a promotion to brigadier. After First Manassas, Stewart hooked up with the Army of Northern Virginia's cavalry, and when Robert E. Lee took command of that army during the seven days in June 1862— Stewart started to make a name for himself. To set the stage, the Peninsula Campaign is where McClellan moved the Army of the Potomac by sea to the Hampton Roads area of southeastern Virginia. Then the Army began slowly creeping its way up the Virginia Peninsula toward Richmond. Confederate Commander Joseph Johnston adopted a conservative defensive posture, slowly giving ground. But on June 1st, Johnston was wounded at Seven Pines. Jefferson Davis put Lee in command, and Lee decided to employ a much more aggressive strategy in defense of Richmond. Lee assigned Stuart a relatively straightforward task. He was to ride out with a little over a 1,000 cavalry uh, to get a clear picture of precisely where and how securely the Army of the Potomac's right flank was secured. Lee wanted to attack, and he needed to know where to do it. Stewart did as instructed, confirming a potential Union weak spot. But rather than returning to camp directly, he came back three days later, having led his men on a 150-mile circuit all the way around McClellan's army. Along the way, they had picked up around 165 Union prisoners and 260 captured horses and mules, along with a wealth of provisions and ordnance courtesy of the Union army. And the cost of all that was only a single Confederate horseman. Uh, In strategic terms, it was certainly helpful. The horses and intelligence, in particular, were most welcome. But there was also a much more significant psychological value to Stewart's ride-around. When the story was recounted in the press, Jeb Stewart came across as every bit the bold, daring cavalier. One reporter, for instance, wrote that Stewart, quote, was always in front, and five shells burst very near him, but he bore himself most gallantly and escaped uninjured, end Stuart joined PGT Beauregard and Stonewall Jackson as the Southern Press's favorite stars. And making the story even more dramatic, the Union cavalry commander who had futilely tried to chase Stuart uh, during the circuit was none other than Philip St. George Cook, Stewart's father-in-law. Now, conversely, George McClellan, the young Napoleon, looked like a dope, as Monday morning quarterbacks everywhere wondered how the presumed savior of the Union cause could be so incompetent as to allow an adversary's cavalry to turn his base of operations into the infield at Churchill Downs. Stewart had a close shave leading up to the Second Battle of Manassas. He was nearly captured by Union cavalry who were out to redeem themselves. Though Stewart escaped the raid, his ostrich feather hat and his stylish cape were not quite so lucky, both falling into Union hands. Less than a week later, Stewart retaliated with a raid and a peril apprehension of his own. The target was the headquarters of Union General John Pope at Catlett's Station. Which Stuart and his men raided on August 22nd. Pope, who briefly spelled McClellan in command, was a reviled figure in the South, and in some Northern circles as well, for his arrogance, penchant for badmouthing other officers, and disregard for civilian property and non combatant safety, at least according to the Southerners. During the successful revenge raid, Stuart and Company pilfered Pope's dress uniform, along with the Union payroll. And more significantly, Stuart captured copies of Union orders that gave Confederate commanders an intelligence advantage leading into the battle. When you think about it, it was fortunate for Stuart that he was able to get his hands on those orders, because uh, otherwise, the episode starts to look more like a heist than a proper raid. Now, Stuart did allow Pope the opportunity to reclaim his dress uniform, sending the Union general a note, quote, you have my hat and plume. I have your best coat. I have the honor to propose a cartel for the fair exchange of the prisoners. End quote. Unfortunately, Pope didn't take him up on it. Aided by the intelligence procured by Stuart's cavaliers, the Confederates defeated Pope's army at Second Bull Run. Uh, during the battle, Stuart's men scouted for, screened, and then protected the flank of Longstreet's command, which ended up delivering the decisive blow of the battle. The cavalry under Jeb Stuart was again assigned to screening and scouting duty in advance of the Army of Northern Virginia's invasion of Maryland. And this is where we really uh, start to see Stuart's cocksure attitude start to get the better of him. Instead of focusing on gathering intelligence and keeping a close watch on Union movements, Stuart spent five days in Urbana, Maryland, nearby Frederick, Throwing parties for the entertainment of local Confederate sympathizers. Seriously. He's supposed to be keeping an eye on the Army's flank and providing as much warning as possible in the event of a Union approach. But instead, he's socializing, drinking lemonade and dancing and generally ingratiating himself into the local social scene. Uh, I'm going to quote a historian by the name of uh, Larry Freiheit from an article he wrote, about Jeb Stuart's performance during the Maryland campaign for what I think is an amusing account of Jeb Stuart, the socialite. Quoting Freiheit, quote, One of his most memorable and notorious escapades occurred on the evening of 8 September near his headquarters at Arbana, Maryland. Stuart and his Prussian aide, Major Heros von Bork, planned the ball to be held at an abandoned female academy to thank a local family, the Cockies, for their hospitality and to entertain an attractive favorite female kinswoman of theirs known as the New York Rebel. Stewart supplied music using Brigadier General William Barksdale's 18th Mississippi Band and decorated the hall with their Mississippi Regiment's battle flags. Enlisted men and junior officers were employed in cleaning the hall and inviting guests while von Bork supplied the handwritten invitations and supervised the decorations, adding bouquets of roses. While the ball progressed splendidly, a few miles away towards Hyattstown, the first New York cavalry decided on a reconnaissance, resulting in pushing back some of Hampton's bidets. News of the skirmish was brought to Stewart at the ball. Stewart and his staff mounted and rode to the scene, accompanied by Pelham's horse artillery, and soon drove off the outgunned New Yorkers. Stewart and his victorious troopers then returned to the ball and recommenced the festivities, only to be interrupted by Confederate casualties being taken upstairs above the ballroom. Stewart and his officers lost many of their comely ladies-turned-surgeons as they treated the enlisted wounded. The ball then continued to dawn. Stewart and his staff spent the next day in needful relaxation. Stewart next visiting Army, and this is Freiheit quoting Henry Kidd Douglas, headquarters where he flirted with Miss Catherine Markle and her friends. Stewart was ready to see and talk to every good-looking woman during his visits to Lee's Army headquarters in Best's Grove, near Frederick. So this guy is quite a character, probably an entertaining person to hang out with. But as as Freiheit concludes, One must question his judgment in continuing to pursue such merriment in unfriendly country in the face of the Army of the Potomac advancing towards him. I think that is a fair criticism. Stewart's inattention resulted in Lee having significantly less advance warning, of McClellan's approach and crossing through South Mountain. Had Stuart spent more time on reconnaissance and less time on hobnobbing, the rebel defeat at South Mountain may have been avoided, and Lee would have been in a uh, better position for the fight at the subsequent Battle of Antietam, rather than scrambling to reunite and position his army. At the battle itself, Stuart turned in a pretty solid performance, drawing praise from his boss, R.E. Lee, who wrote in his report, quote, General Stewart, with the cavalry and horse artillery, performed the duty entrusted to him of guarding our left wing with great energy and courage and rendered valuable assistance in defeating the attack on that part of the line, End quote. Jeb Stewart's excess of self-assurance, daring, and high tolerance for risk, not to mention the sense of humor, helped him accomplish some cavalry exploits that make for great newspaper or podcast stories and he was good in a scrap. But his nonchalance and inattention to detail could also be a liability. So now we're at the aftermath of Antietam, and that brings us to what I had originally intended to be the focus of this episode, Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, or more specifically the two raids on the small town, just north of the Mason-Dixon line. After Antietam, McClellan was being pressed by Washington to pursue Lee and initiate a decisive battle. McClellan opted against doing so, which allowed the Confederates a little more flexibility in how they operated in the fall of 1862. Lee's invasion of Maryland had, along with resulting in defeat, failed to achieve its other objectives. Residents of western Maryland didn't rally to the Confederate cause. And northern communications and transport routes that Lee had hoped to sever remained intact. Even more, the rebel plan to secure much-needed food and supplies courtesy of the good citizens of Maryland and Pennsylvania hadn't really been all that productive. And so, as a backup plan, Lee dispatched his top cavalier, Jeb Stuart, to accomplish through a smaller, targeted raid, what the Army of Northern Virginia had failed to do en masse. Stewart's primary objective was something that, I think, self-help aficionados would view as a well-designed goal. It was specific and definite, it was achievable, and it was legitimately related to improving the rebel position. Specifically, the goal was to destroy a railroad bridge across Kanakaheg Creek. The bridge was viewed as a potential choke point, to significantly limit Union supplies uh, from reaching the Army of the Potomac and the East Coast generally. So if any of the men riding with Stewart had questions about what they were, what they were doing and why they were doing it, he would have been able to give them a, a concrete answer. We're demolishing a railroad bridge over a creek in Pennsylvania to hinder the flow of Union supplies. Now, there were a couple uh, what you might call ancillary objectives. Uh, union authorities had arrested and were holding some Virginia officials as prisoners. So Stewart was going to try to capture some corresponding northern civilian leaders uh, for use as bargaining chips for the release of um, you know, their Virginia counterparts. And of course, the standard cavalry role of reconnaissance was part of the mission too. Stewart's men were going to be moving over a fairly large area of northern Virginia into western Maryland, and then south-central Pennsylvania. Any info relating to, to Union forces in the area you know, could prove helpful. Now, to put some perspective on it, though, the raid wasn't just, wasn't just Jeb Stuart and you know, a handful of guys. Uh, he, he was in command of about 1,800 Cavaliers. So it was effectively a horde making its way across the Mesa Dixon. And they'd be traveling light and quick, with just four relatively small artillery pieces. As things played out, the rebel horsemen would end up traveling more than 125 miles in two and a half days. So, you, know, you do the math, and we're talking 50 miles every day. Uh, so, they covered a lot of ground. The amount of travel and the terrain covered went well beyond what Lee had proposed. But Jeb Stewart was in it for more than just strategic gains. He wanted another grand adventure story in which he was the featured performer. Stewart's overall plan was to circle, again, all the way around George McClellan's Army of the Potomac, a feat that he had accomplished, to McClellan's embarrassment, just a few months prior. That would involve riding west to cross the Potomac from the Shenandoah Valley, then north into Pennsylvania in the general vicinity of Chambersburg where the Rebel Cavaliers would destroy any strategic assets and help themselves to food, horses, and supplies, and then move back east through Pennsylvania and Maryland to ultimately cross the Potomac between McClellan and Washington, D.C., reuniting with Lee after completing the full circle around the Union Army. Stuart would bring with him, and had intentionally sought out, Cavaliers from Maryland and Pennsylvania to serve as guides. Now, we need to mention a caveat uh, to that part about confiscating supplies. At Lee's direction, Stewart ordered the men not to needlessly destroy or steal private property. Of course, they were going to take whatever they needed, uh, especially horses. But instead of an uncompensated appropriation, they intended to pay for it all, using Confederate paper money that held little, if any, value in Maryland or Pennsylvania. Now, as far as the the Pennsylvania farmers were concerned, the the rebels might as well have been handing them those $10 billion banknotes from Zimbabwe. But there was still a propaganda purpose. The rebels could, you know, truthfully say that they had paid for what they took. The raid began in earnest on October 9th, as the rebels made their approach through Berkeley County in present-day West Virginia, camping in the small town of Hedgesville. Then they crossed the Potomac into Maryland on the 10th. The idea was that the crossing would be covert. They wanted to be as stealthy as over a thousand men on horseback can be, but a small Union cavalry detachment spotted the raiders and was able to get word of the rebel incursion onto northern soil up the Union chain of command. Six Union infantry regiments were sent in pursuit, but the more mobile cavalry managed to give them the slip. The part of Maryland that they were riding through um, after crossing the Potomac from Virginia is, um, if you look on a map, it's the skinny section near Hagerstown. Uh, Maryland has a a western panhandle where Cumberland is, and the part we're talking about is the sliver that connects that panhandle to the rest of the state. So it's only like 10 or 15 miles um, that they would uh, ride through in Maryland before they would reach Pennsylvania. And in fact, they got into Pennsylvania the same day. After a brief stop off in Mercersburg, where they purchased, uh, air quotes there, shoes, the rebels headed for nearby Chambersburg, which is about 10 miles or so further. They arrived during an evening rainstorm, and alert citizens were able to send a telegraph to Washington before the lines were severed. Henry Halleck received the message, and he acted uh, pretty quickly directing McClellan to dispatch federal cavalry to intercept Stuart. Halleck wanted to establish roadblocks and guard the river crossings for potential avenues for Stuart's uh, return to Virginia. Uh, basically trap Stuart in Pennsylvania uh, or Maryland and either destroy the rebel cavalry or force its surrender. Now McClellan, you know, he wanted the same thing and his army was still near Sharpsburg, so relatively close to Stewart's location, but he was just a little less enthusiastic, and the response came with McClellan's typical delay. Meanwhile, back in Chambersburg, Stewart's demand for the town's surrender was met, and Confederate Cavaliers seized the federal weapons and ammunition that were stored there. Stewart appointed South Carolinian Wade Hampton as military governor of Chambersburg, now that seems a little a little unnecessary considering the rebels were were not planning to stay long but i suspect that hampton's appointment was viewed as a retaliation for the occupied southern cities which were were likewise ruled by military governors or or maybe just stuart thought it was funny while in chambersburg stuart's men burned the train station and the rail cars and the military storage areas were likewise burned after any useful material uh, had been removed. Stewart also attempted to relieve the local bank of its deposits. Now, again, these cavalry raids sometimes end up looking uh, an awful lot like heists, uh, but the clever banker had evacuated the cash upon learning of the rebel presence near the town. And as a, a final dramatic flare, Stewart signed the guest book at the town's best hotel, the Franklin Inn, uh, Chambersburg being in Franklin County. Now, I checked TripAdvisor for its list of the 10 best hotels in Chambersburg and was disappointed to find that the Franklin Inn does not make the list. However, the Hampton Inn does make the list. So maybe they changed the name of the place during Wade Hampton's tenure as military governor. Though I suspect... Uh, but was unable to confirm that the Franklin Inn didn't survive the Confederate visit a couple years later. So it was about this time that Jeb Stuart and his fellow Confederates start asking themselves, now what exactly were we supposed to be doing again? Does anybody remember? That's right, the bridge. So Stuart dispatches a smaller cavalry team to go to Kanakahe Creek to destroy the railroad bridge. Now, about the creek, Wikipedia helpfully tells us that, quote, A large portion of it runs through wilderness, making for very fine smallmouth bass, warmouth, and rock bass fishing. However, there are a few small sewage treatment plants on the lower west branch, end quote. But the, uh, the rebel cavaliers didn't have time for fishing, and probably weren't all that interested in the uh, small sewage treatment plants had a job to do. Destroy the bridge. That was, after all, the number one reason General Lee had sent them there. So, you think they destroyed the bridge? Of course not. These guys were looking to have a good time signing guest books and robbing banks and starting fires. The bridge-destroying part of the mission got de-emphasized. Now, depending on which source you want to go with, uh, they either couldn't find the darn thing, or... And the second one's better. They abandoned the effort when a few locals informed them that the bridge was constructed of iron, which was untrue, and uh, therefore couldn't be burned. After all that, you know, these guys would end up riding like 150 miles uh, for this mission. After all that, they couldn't even find, let alone destroy, the bridge. You can just imagine Stuart getting back to camp, uh, exhausted, but uh, still excited about the mission. And Lee asks about the, uh, the bridge. And Stuart says something like, No, we never got around to it. But I did sign the guest book at the Franklin Inn. Pretty hilarious, right? So the kanaka Creek uh, Rail Bridge is still intact. But it's time to get out of Chambersburg. First, though, they managed to get their hands on some blue Union uniforms, which would offer a, a small level of camouflage for the ride back. For the return trip, Stuart opted to use an alternate route, which was probably a pretty good idea. Instead of heading back through the Shenandoah Valley, they rode east through Cashtown, Pennsylvania and Emmitsburg, Maryland, where they were apparently greeted by cheers from the locals to ultimately travel south uh, through Frederick County, Maryland. As they approached Frederick, the uh, city of Frederick, not the surrounding county, Stuart's men captured a Union courier which let Stuart know to avoid the city of Frederick due to the heavy presence of Union cavalry uh, in and around the town. Uh, Because there were Marylanders in Stuart's cavalry who were familiar with the area, altering the route wasn't a problem, and they were able to uh, avoid the larger thoroughfares in favor of smaller, less traveled roads. Uh, They were spotted by some Union infantry while in Frederick County, but it, it was much too small of a force Uh, to confront the Confederate raiders. Okay, almost home free, right? Uh, They're still in Union territory, but it is a fairly friendly area of Maryland. So best to avoid distractions and head straight for Virginia while the path's open, right? Nope, not if you're Jeb Stewart. Uh, The evening of the 11th, Stewart opted to take a little break for a social call. Uh, During his last visit to Maryland, remember when we were throwing parties prior to Antietam. Uh, during that visit, Stewart had made the acquaintance of a charming young lady who lived in Frederick County. And, well, he was in the neighborhood, so with a small escort, they paid a visit to the young woman's residence. The rest of the men kept riding, and uh, after the visit, Stewart and his escort caught up to them uh, very early the next morning. So, setting aside that stop-off, the rebels had been riding pretty much all night, and they were all just beyond exhausted. But fortunately, they had almost reached the Potomac. There was Union infantry under Brigadier George Stoneman waiting for them at the river near a crossing by Poolsville, but Stewart was smart enough to send out advance riders to check the path before bringing uh, the entire 1,000-plus-man uh, raiding party. And the scouts spotted Stoneman's men, got word back to Stuart, and they used an alternate crossing recommended by, uh, once again, those helpful Maryland Cavaliers riding with Stuart. So on October 12th, Stuart's men crossed unmolested back into Loudoun County, Virginia. And once again, he had completed a circle all the way around the Army of the Potomac, facing essentially zero meaningful Union interference. The cost this time had been two missing Confederate Cavaliers— and a few dozen horses that uh, couldn't handle the ride. But along the way, they had pilfered about 1,200 horses, so Stewart was easily uh, well into the black on the uh, equine balance sheet. Indeed, Confederate General Jubal Early derisively referred to the raid as, quote, the greatest horse-stealing expedition. But Lee ultimately concluded that it had been a success, even absent the destruction of the Target Bridge. Probably more significantly, in big-picture terms, the so-called second ride around McClellan was another big embarrassment for George McClellan. Little Mac had plenty of excuses, but Lincoln's patience was reaching its end. On October 13th, the day after Stewart's safe return to Virginia, Lincoln penned a frustrated letter to the commanding general, quoting in part, You remember my speaking to you of what I called your overcautiousness. That's a great opening line, by the way. Are you not overcautious when you assume that you cannot do what the enemy is constantly doing? Should you not claim to be at least his equal in prowess and act upon that claim? Again, one of the standard maxims of war, as you know, is to operate upon the enemy's communications as much as possible without exposing your own. You seem to act as if this applies against you, but cannot apply in your favor. Change positions with the enemy, and think you not he would break your communication with Richmond within the next 24 hours? You dread his going into Pennsylvania, but if he does so in full force, he gives up his communications to you absolutely, and you have nothing to do but to follow and ruin him. If he does so with less than full force fall upon, and beat what is left behind all the easier. I say try. If we never try, we shall never succeed. We must not so operate as to merely drive him away. As we must beat him somewhere, or fail finally, we can do it, if at all, easier near to us than far away. Lincoln was trying, um, you know, again, to light a fire under McClellan. But it didn't work. Less than a month later, Lincoln fired McClellan, and Burnside took command of the Army of the Potomac. That's where we're going to leave off for, I guess, what we'll call part A of our um, Raiders of the Lost Cause series. I know it's a little shorter than, than normal, but uh, we should have another one out here real soon, uh, which we'll call part B. Um, just as soon as I can get the file edited. In part B, we'll say goodbye to Jeb Stewart. And then we'll take a look at the second big raid on Chambersburg, in which the town uh, didn't fare very well. And we'll also get to know Jubal Early a little bit. Uh, Early was a uh, very strange character, so I think that'll be pretty fun. If you have any questions or comments about the show, you can reach us at blueandgraypodcast at gmail.com. Gray with an E. As always, thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the show. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse?